0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, I'm speaking with Tellery Arundel about her book, The Autistic Stage, How Cognitive Disability Changed 20th Century Performance. Welcome to the program.
1: The wiring that impairs, say, the ability to discern, discern symbolism in Shakespeare might enable an extraordinary ability to memorize a scene from Hamlet. That's from... Uh, uh, an article called Breaking Through by Kristen Senani. That's what, how I start my arts therapy for autism, working toward a theory of mind. That's a chapter in my book. And I will just read the first few paragraphs of that.
0: It, that seems, great.
1: Great. Mm-hmm. it seems clear that it is often the same characteristics in an individual on the spectrum that make them both odd. Or unusual by normative social standards and also extraordinary and gifted the shift from odd to gifted depends a lot on context and support whereas the rain man character Raymond's traits are that's the movie Raymond his traits are impediments to his brother's Charlie's brother Charlie's voyage home these same peculiarities are what allow Raymond to excel in counting cards at the casino By the same token, Temple Grandin's extraordinary capacity to think in pictures that map and calculate spatial designs in her head involves a literality that does not help her in her high school French, where the male third-person plural, I-L-S, pronounced eel, translates into what sounds to her like eels, E-E-L-S, and causes the Grandin character to ask why the French people like fish so much in that movie. What was essential for Grandin in her studies was the possibility of stepping out of a social context in order to get perspective and let her emotional state return to its base through the therapeutic use of her squeeze machine. This mechanical reduction of stress by means of physical pressure on her body had a measurably calming effect on Grandin that assured her ability to return to stressful, sorry, to return to stressful social environments. In Grandin's case, a physical form of therapy made way for an improved theory of mind. Granted Squeeze Machine employed a form of deep pressure therapy that reduced the social anxiety about interpersonal connection. Those on the autism spectrum also benefit from therapies that address language acquisition, eye contact, the relationship between cause and effect with gesture, expression of emotion, reading contextual clues, and a recognition of embodiment. Various art therapies offer different approaches to these building blocks. Some focus on the individual's ability to represent abstract concepts and emotional memory through drawing. Others use movement paired with spoken sound in order to connect verbal expression with physical motion. And those who approach autistic tendencies from a theatrical perspective with character portrayal and the parsing of social interaction into what a director might call the beats of a scene. So what ties all of these different approaches together is a quest for meaning. The journey is both a study of how meaning is made in art and also in education in the many layers of what is called reciprocal curing, which is different than reciprocal cueing. Right. Uh, this is a term that surfaces in autism therapy literature in reference to the dynamics of both general social interaction and also the communication between client and therapist. The process provides an interactive art therapy in which social skills and the necessary reciprocity between performer and audience members serve to establish a mutual understanding between actor and receiver. The simplest cues to meaning involve body language, visual expression, tone of voice, and physical proximity, and are often the social signals that those in the autism spectrum either miss or misinterpret. Art therapy works through artistic training to sharpen social perception and connect abstract representation with concrete image formation.
0: Yeah, I really love that section because I feel like it there's there's so much to unpack from there, but one thing I'd love to start by talking about is just this idea that the autistic mind is a different way of perceiving the world but is not an inferior way of perceiving the world compared with the kind of neurotypical uh, mind and that autistic people, like all people have a need and a desire to communicate with others.
1: Absolutely. It just often needs to come in a slightly different format than what we usually use person to person, right? For many uh, For many, for many on the spectrum, what is far more comfortable is emailing back and forth, right? So that you don't have any sense of needing to meet with someone face to face and have to deal with eye contact, right? That's hard for a lot of people on the spectrum. That is really hard. So for many of them, Coming into the, technology, the technological age we're currently living in was joyful, right? And still is joyful because that means that they can find technological ways, technologies to communicate through rather than having to use face-to-face verbal interaction.
0: Yeah, the internet has been huge for the autism community. There are very vibrant online spaces uh, by and for autistic people. Um, but your book is about theater primarily, uh, though you touch on other art forms. Uh, theater, to somebody who maybe doesn't know much about autism, would seem like a very bad fit for autistic people. It's all about face-to-face interaction. So why is that misconception wrong?
1: Well, and and certainly for some individuals, that would still be a wrong a wrong thing, right? (laughs) Quite frankly, there are plenty of people who are not on the autism spectrum for whom theater is terrifying, right? The idea of being up in front of an audience of any kind is not such a good thing, right? For those people who are just terribly shy. But for people who are on the spectrum, what they have found really helps is having them perform social interaction as a practice, before having to actually be one-on-one, right? So that's, mm-hmm. that's the, in my mind, that's the biggest connection between theater and what it means to rehearse social interaction and, you know, written out in scene work and otherwise, and then having that same kind of interaction with somebody live, it's a way to rehearse it before you actually have to have that interaction, so that you know it, you've memorized it, before you get put in that situation and everything goes haywire, right? So that's one possibility. I know that makes it also makes it sound, on the other hand, like you would be two-staged, right? That you, as a person on the spectrum, had you performed those sorts of social interactions, would then end up face to face with someone and and sound like you had rehearsed this a million times rather than having it seem more natural but i believe that the way this works is it's an entrance right it's it's a way for people in the spectrum to enter social interaction having something that really grounds them something they've practiced something they know exactly how to do before that whole social interaction goes in another direction that they then are able to
0: follow. It's also, a rehearsal room is a very structured social interaction. There are, you know, you take a 10 minute break after an hour and a half and, uh, um, you know, you know where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. And yet it does provide an opportunity. Certainly every theater kid listening to this will know this, that, uh, you know, being in a play can provide a great opportunity to, make friendships and social relationships. But do you think that's part of what's comforting to some autistic people about theater? Just the idea that it is a social interaction, but it's not this sort of everything goes free form of just hanging out, but that there's a specific schedule and a specific activity? Definitely.
1: That's very important to people on the spectrum in general, right? To know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, why it's going to happen stuff that gets thrown at them that they're not expecting just puts them off track completely. So I think within the rehearsal space is definitely supposed to be a safe space, right? Those of us who have taught any kind of performance classes, you have to get people all in the same space on the same page about who, how to interact with each other in ways that are helpful rather than harmful. Right? So those kinds of, whether it's a rehearsal space or uh, an acting classroom, those spaces are places where the people who are instructing know that it needs to be a safe environment, right? So it's always got to be about constructive criticism rather than destructive criticism. It's always got to be a space where you're not necessarily, if you get up in the space, you're not necessarily perfect from the get-go. You have to rehearse something, right? Right. That's sort of the way rehearsal and theater works, in general, is that you get a chance over and over again to work with material until it seems like it works the way it's supposed to work, right? Or it sounds like it's supposed to sound, or it looks like it's supposed to look. The I for me, the thing that terrifies me as a theater practitioner is improv because I suck at it. I'm really bad at improvisation, right? So from my perspective, I can totally understand why having something fairly memorized before you step out on stage, whether it's the world stage or, you know, up in front of an audience at a theater at a paying audience at a theater. For me, it helps to have something that I know I know, right. That I have Mm -hmm. memorized before it has to come out of my mouth and I have to put character into it. Right. So I think that's useful for any actor. And I, I, greatly applaud the people who can do improv on their feet some are wildly good at doing that I just have never been so for me I totally understand the sense of wanting to know what it is you're going to do and what you're going to say and not have it be just completely
0: different each night you do it yeah certainly Um, I'd love to ask you kind of what your kind of door into this project was what got you interested in writing a book about this intersection, this very fruitful intersection between kind of disability studies and performance studies.
1: You know, it's funny because my very first book called um, Performing Disability, which got, I'm sure, misinterpreted any number of ways, but Performing Disability Staging the Actual is the title of that book, which was my dissertation at Stanford that I then tinkered with a little bit and got published. And, you know, it had been published as articles already. So when I put it all together as a book, it got published by a uh, fairly unknown press or unreputable press, I should say. Um, that In that first book, I, I ended that whole book with a whole discussion of Robert Wilson and what he did when he worked with this boy who was on the autism spectrum, right? And Christopher Knowles... That whole interaction between the two of them, although there is all kinds of complicated politics that went into their interactions as two artistic practitioners, there was also, uh, I thought, a really wonderful back and forth learning process where Robert Wilson, whether he took things from Christopher Knowles and used them to, for his own benefits and things like Einstein on the Beach, right, which was very, very famous at the time, whether he plugged into the way Christopher Knowles thought about things and did things and felt like that really resonated with with how he, as Robert Wilson, thought about the world, whether he just wanted to change perspective, which may have been the only reason he actually got involved in any of that with Christopher Knowles. I'm not sure any of the the answers to any of those questions really matter so much as the product that came out of it and the relationship between those two people. Um, Christopher Knowles, I believe, went on to do his own set of artistry after he worked with Robert Wilson. That probably riffed off of what he had come up with with Robert Wilson It's just that because Robert Wilson has, at this point in time, become such a big name as a theater practitioner, Christopher Knowles was not given that same kind of focus and notoriety. So, that's what a conversation about that, all of that, was at the very end of my very first book. And I thought to myself, I felt like I put it in at the end and I didn't really get it, I didn't have room to explore it more. So, what I wanted to do was actually start the next book with that in mind, right? Having that be the real focus and dig into the concept more and sort of get a sense of why someone like Robert Wilson, who is, was very progressive and wanted to come up with really innovative ways of putting image on stage, why he would have turned to, he was a kid, he was like a, a teenager at the time, right? Christopher Knowles why he would have turned to Christopher Knowles and said, wow, you've really got something there. Let's explore it. So that's why I stepped into this other space. Do I have autism myself? No. Do I have someone in my family who has autism? No, right? I have multiple sclerosis, so I know all about neurological craziness, shall we say, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I know what it means to have your brain... Not perform in the way that it's technically supposed to,
0: right? Or that it's assumed to supposed to, yeah.
1: Way of putting it. So that's my neurological in for this particular um, set of ideas and set of explorations about what is it about the autistic mind? And grant, you know, grant. There are plenty who will say to you, when you've met someone with autism, you've met one person with autism. It's not like they are a whole group that thinks exactly the same, right? Mm-hmm. But there are things about their behavior and their, uh, interaction with the world that have been found to be similar enough to be able to say, Oh, when they come in to get diagnosed by a doctor, I believe your child is autistic. Now, the real difference between even, you know, this book was what, you know, five years ago or something like that. The the way these things work, even a five-year span going by from the publication of this book to now means that things have changed, right? Which is not to say that my book has no value. It does. It just, with any book that's ever published, you have to take into account that What is being published, the ideas that are published in the book have everything to do with that moment in time and what is available to put into your book, right? Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, just to give you an example of what may have changed from the even from 2015 until now 2020, is that rather than spending so much time thinking about people on the autism spectrum as patients right? Or people with disorders. I believe that literature has now progressed far enough to say, it's not that these people are necessarily disabled. It's not that autism is necessarily a disorder. It's that it's a different way of processing information, of interacting with the world, right? So... I think I, I put as much of that kind of forward thinking, more progressive way of understanding autism into my book as I could at the time. It's just that, were, for instance, were I to rewrite the book at this point in time, it would have a different feeling to it, because at this point in time, we are moving far further into the direction of saying, people with autism, maybe we shouldn't consider them to be people who are disabled, right? Maybe we should think of them as having a completely different processing system, different way of thinking about things in the world. And shoot, for all we know, they may have the best way to adapt to future existence, right? Mm -hmm. We just are, are looking at it from our perspective rather than somewhere 20 years from now.
0: It's very clear in reading your book that you're moving towards that kind of way of thinking about autism. Like, it's not like, you know, this is uh, a complete paradigm shift away from where those discussions are now. But but yeah, the discussions are happening very quickly in the autistic community. And, and even the question of is autism a disability is hotly contested, uh, you know, within disability studies and within autism activism and You know, we could talk about the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. We could have this conversation for hours, obviously. (laughs) But I, yeah, I I definitely um, feel like one of the really fruitful aspects of your book is just thinking about, well, an autistic way of thinking about the world is different and unique. And in the arts, we're always trying to find a, a new way to look at the world. So there might not be anything that unusual about uh, an autistic poet like Christopher Knowles contributing. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the libretto for Einstein on the beach, right? I mean, we think of that Einstein on the beach as being Philip Glass and Robert Wilson, but maybe we really need to think of it as Philip Glass, Robert Wilson and Christopher Knowles.
1: Yes. And I I believe that people who are at the forefront of Letting the power lie where it needs to lie, letting, letting people be credited for what they need to be credited for in this ongoing conversation, whether it's about race or disability or sexuality or anything, right, has very much to do with why is his name not on there, right? Why, why did he not get royalties, he Christopher Knowles, as opposed to Robert Wilson or Philip Glass? And that's a big that question, true? and that's a good question, and that should continue to be asked, quite frankly. He didn't get any royalties? Well, I don't know. I, I didn't look into it. I don't know, but it was also at a time when, for instance, he was young, right? Yeah, when yeah. Wilson worked with him, he was, I believe, early teens, right? So Yeah,
0: like 14 or 15. Yeah,
1: right, so I'm not sure... I'm not sure that was even part of the conversation, right? And we're talking about, that was years ago. We're not talking about today where you would have had lawyers at everybody's door knocking mm-hmm. saying, okay, give us the money, right? We have much more of a, a an enlightened way of thinking about those things at this point in time than they necessarily did back when Einstein was made. But it's in effect the same kind of question about rights and whose work is it and along those lines I have to just disclose and admit that this book that I wrote I'm sure has any number of people who would come back and say but you are not on the autism spectrum and you wrote this book right and I hear that I hear that and I think it's a very valid thing to say I also know that Sometimes you need people at the front of a movement who are connected to it and believe in it, but aren't necessarily fully representative of that movement itself to open the door and say, here's the space that's been made, jump in. So I'm hoping
0: that's what I did. Yeah. And I mean, there is really, I should emphasize, very little written about this topic. Like, this is really one of the few books that exists about, you know, discussing autism and theater in the same context. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the other specific chapters. We've talked a bit about Einstein on the Beach, uh, but you also talk about uh, Pig Iron Theater Company's production, Chekhov Lizard Brain. What a title! some of our listeners probably will have heard of Pig Iron, but some probably won't. Could you talk a bit about Pig Iron uh, and, and your involvement with the company, and then we'll move into a discussion of this particular piece? Absolutely. That would be good for people to hear. Pig Iron, I have to
1: say, it was like any number of small independent theater companies. We start, I was one of the founding members of it, although they went on to take it public and you know, do all kinds of amazing international and domestic work with it, with the company. They are still located in Philadelphia. They do work in Philadelphia and New York, in various European countries. They have done any number of things that's worth looking up, right? This piece I included both because I had been one of the founding members, but also because for me, it was a wild conception of a meeting ground between Anton Chekhov and the way he writes his work, wrote his work. Right. And autistic minds, the way that autism structures things. So this particular character within that, and I should say more about Pigaran, sorry, before I switch, Um, Pigaran got started, the three people who, who sort of, Mm, gathered all of us when we were all still students at Swarthmore College, Uh, Dan Rothenberg and uh, Quinn Baradell, whose first name is actually Gabriel. So it's Gabriel Quinn Baradell, although it goes by Quinn Uh, and Dito van Rijgersberg. Those three had served as the three artistic directors for the company for any number of years. I think Dito has now stepped out of that to do his own work more, Although he's still connected with Pigarin, obviously. The two people who are still the artistic directors of that company at this moment, Quinn and Dan, both spent, I think it was two years after they graduated from college at the Jacques Lecoq School of Mime in Paris. And I say mime you'd have to understand that it's not just all about red nose clowns, right? It's a very different way of mining, right? And a much more deep and I think really useful exploration of the, the crazy line between like very definite line and crazy line between tragedy and comedy. Mm -hmm. And if you've done any kind of clowning, you would understand that statement because you cannot be a clown without being able to ride that line between tragedy and comedy in the best of ways right um, so that's where that's where we started that 's where we started, and I believe, having read interviews with Dan at least that at some point in time after I left them to become an academic, they ended up moving in their own direction, developing their own style. but within those first few years that I worked with them as an actor and a co I don't know what you'd call us. Like we made work together as a collaborator, a right? Co-builder um, of pieces. For those years, they, the two of them, really did want to pull in as much of the Lecoq training as they had gotten for us to use as a starting point. So that's where Pigarn began. And I asked them recently because I'm—I'm I'm, my next book is going to be about this kind of devised collaboration. My uh, my question to them at this point in time has been, well, I have a lot of questions for them, but this sense of if you were to say that you had, a, not a practice, not a theory, but a, a way to describe the work that you do, like is there is there, do you have something that you can, that you, a term you can use to categorize your style, that's the best way to put it, and all of them have said, have thought about it and said to me, well, probably mostly Lecoq, right? Mm-hmm. So even at this many years beyond where we started the company, and I think 1996, this many, or 1985, or 19, mm, is that ninety five, ninety six? 96? Yeah, it was. Somewhere around that time. When we started this company, that's where they were. And yet this many years later, they still, when asked, will say, I think the person we have used the the structure, the methodology we have used most has been Jacques Lecoq, right? That's what they would say. And very much is the active portion of what Quinn has set up now in the Pigarn School, because they have a whole school where they're they're doing essentially what Lecoq did for them when they went to study with Lecoq in Paris. So this piece that I included in the book is a piece that they did. And they, they came up with it. They put it together. They created it, not necessarily thinking to themselves, oh, Chekhov, how much like an autistic mind is this playwright, right? That's not where they were coming from with it. It's that when I went to go see them in Philadelphia do this piece, I thought, oh, my God. It was like autism made every bit of sense of Chekhov, and Chekhov made every bit of sense of autism,
0: right? Mm -hmm.
1: So that's what I tried to describe in that chapter is how it is I came to that understanding. And again, critics, I'm sure, would come to see the piece and not have that understanding of it at all. And yet when I talked to the company members, they said this character that we're using, the Chekhov Lizard brain character, the main character played by James Sugg, who I think got an award for his playing of this role for that particular piece as well, was very in line with what we understand about autism. Right? And it's a different way of doing things and its a different approach to the world, and even aspects of it that are very much about antisocial behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Or a different kind of social behavior, I should say so that's that's what I did was come in and say, "Oh my gosh, wow." Yeah. And for me it was it was really important to be able to say, "Chekhov, famous, famous playwright from modern theater, Hard sometimes to understand because He seems to be speaking a language that, to me at least, when I read it off the page, I think, oh my God, this is so stilted, right? This is not a natural way of speaking. He's talking about natural concepts, but the speech of it, and granted it was translated too, so that adds to that sort of clunkiness of it. There was something about the way Chekhov did things and said things that to me only made sense within an autistic perception of the world.
0: Yeah. And I feel like Chekhov, Chekhov is so in tune to the kind of inherent tragedy of human interaction where somebody will say one thing and then it gets interpreted in a completely different way by the other person. Yes. Right.
1: So even in that, in that particular context of understanding, it is about, You send information out there, someone else is not necessarily receiving the information you're sending with the meaning you had in mind. Links directly, in my mind, at least to people on the spectrum who don't quite pick up on cues, right? Don't quite pick up on social indications, right? We we, you know, the larger public can can say, oh well, yes, meaning is about the words you use, right? But I, as someone who came from a dance background into theater, would very equally say, oh, there's a whole nother conversation that happens in life-to-life interaction, you know, person-to-person interaction in life on the street, in a classroom. on a stage, right? It can be both theater in which that happens and everyday life in which that happens. And a larger part, well, I'll just describe it so you'll understand. When I go to see any theater piece anywhere of any sort, of any style, of any genre, part of it I process as the words being spoken on stage and that particular story told through dialogue or monologue there is also though for me a much i wouldn't call it heavier but it's a much more uh it's a much richer much more rich conversation that happens between bodies in the space that have something to do with the words but at times directly go against anything that's being said right I love those moments. Those are my favorite moments on stage is when you have words coming out of characters' mouths and yet what they're doing with their bodies speaks a completely different message. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I just love those moments, right? So
0: mm-hmm.
1: that to me is an echo also of when you say something or you make an expression or you use a metaphorical reference and people on the spectrum autism spectrum will say to you but wait that doesn't make any sense because they take things very at a very literal level right oh. that's that's mainly the way that works metaphor very difficult very difficult because metaphor, if you think about metaphor, it doesn't have anything to do really with what it really means. Does that make sense? At the literal level, yeah. it's a much sort of more, um, I don't want to say elevated, because that that makes it sound pejorative. But it's a way of... It's pi- abstract. Yeah, it's abstract. It's a way of picturing theory. the world at a, at a different level of understanding than if someone is just taking things very literally. Right? Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. I think all that's really, it's, that's fascinating to me. But for people on the spectrum, that is infuriating when people are using a metaphorical language and they have no, no entrance, no access to it.
0: Right. Which I think connects back to this idea of theater because, you know, theater is a very concrete art form. It's it's bodies in space. It's you know it's it's people interacting right in front of you. It, maybe that would make it a, a better art form for some autistic people than, you know, lyric poetry, for example.
1: Right, right. I think, frankly, it's also that there's space in theater for, like I said, for a number of levels of communication and that it may not be so much what's being said. It may be something completely different than what's being said. It might, in effect, be how something is being said that means more than what is being said. Or it might be something where the body is giving cues that the language doesn't give, but are more true to what the meaning of that scene actually ends up being.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to a different topic that you uh, write about in the book, you you talk about several different filmic portrayals of autism, both documentary films and fictional films or, or you know, films based on true events, but that are uh, themselves fictional. Uh, could you talk about kind of what those uh, fairly recent portrayals of autism tell us about the evolving understanding of autism within the kind of broader non-autistic uh, community? I mean, from Rain Man to uh the the television film about Temple Grandin is a is a giant leap forward in public perception in some ways right, right.
1: definitely definitely and that is not to say anything against Dustin Hoffman and his amazing ability to act obviously yeah
0: dustin hoffman's doing fine right, you, right 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 right
1: <laughs> right um temple i'll tell you a lot about it temple grandin this film that they made with her is is a big difference right mm-hmm The two people whose names, of course, I'm blanking on, the two directors or the director plus his cohort, right, made this film very much in conversation with Temple Granite because it was about her, right? It's a Mm -hmm. biopic is what it is. And it's a brilliant biopic and made in ways that to me indicate that these two people making the film not only conversed with her, but let her edit things. How, you know, came to a, a, an understanding of who she was and how to tell her, how best to tell her story in ways that used her language and her way of processing information rather than trying to put a story onto her. Does that make sense? There are any, know, yeah. throughout history, there are any number of films made of, you know, historical films made about big figures that don't involve any kind of conversation with those figures at all. But the fact that she was still alive and is still alive meant, I think from the, from, from the get go with that film that they had to really interact with her and ask her questions and say, are we filmmakers who are not on the autism spectrum accurately portraying your life and your experience on the spectrum? That was really, 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 really important. Which is not to say that Temple Grandin made the film, right? Because she didn't. She's an academic, just like I am. And although I'm sure she could make a film about her life, that was not what she was doing. She's a writer, right? But they made this film that I think shook the world, right? Really, um, and yes, looking back at Rayman and straightforward to... This movie, Temple Grandin, the gap in between who's in, A, who's in charge of the representation, B, how many people have they talked to about it, C, did they let her be in on the final decisions about the film and what was in the film? Yes, is the answer to that question. And that's really unusual, right? That's really unusual. Having come from, and the film sort of tracks this having come from a time in our collective history where autism was understood as a deficit and doctors would flat out say to the parents of kids who are on the spectrum, oh, you should institutionalize this person for different reasons, because they weren't talking at age four, right? Because they couldn't communicate, because they couldn't do various things that they were supposed to have done by a certain age. That's what people in this film at the beginning, toward the beginning of the film, that's what the doctors who are represented say. And that's not a misrepresentation of the doctors at that point in time when Temple Grandin was herself only four or five, right? That's what doctors were saying. This, they said, this might be a kind of schizophrenia, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they said about autism. And it took many, many years from the beginning of that film until where she is now for science to catch up with what this actually involved and involves, I should say. That is, I'm sure, certainly not to say there aren't still people on the spectrum who are what in my book used to be called um, less functional, right? Right versus high-functioning versus low-functioning. So many of these people might be what would be considered low-functioning. Although what's wild is that over the course of time that this film depicts, Temple Grandin as a four-year-old was considered either schizophrenic or... um just didn't have the intelligence level that she would need to even be starting a public school system, right? So going from that to the point where she is now where she has basically designed the dipping vats in cattle ranches, I think the number the percentage of the the ranches that she has done this for is something crazy like fifty to sixty percent within our own country, right. This is a person who radicalized the cattle industry. And yet, at age four, the doctor said to her mother, Oh, you should put her in an institution. There's not much else we can do for her.
0: Right? Yeah. yeah. This functioning language is so absurd in a way because nobody's good at everything. You know, so an autistic person is going to be good at some things and won't be good at other things, just like everyone else you know there they might be the the extremes might be a little bit uh, more dr- drastic in the case of an autistic person than in the case of a neurotypical person but it's not like you know it's not like somebody who isn't autistic is going to be brilliant at everything they try just because they were you know blessed with a neurotypical brain or something
1: exactly and i will say the class that i teach a class at Missouri State University and I have for the whole time I've been here since 2008. I teach a class that's called Theater for Social Change. And this is a class where different people coming into it to teach it would obviously do very different things. I tend to make it a class where I do a broad spectrum study, intellectual study of people who have made Theater for Social Change even possible today, right, as examples. And I have my students go and work with, they do uh, integrated service learning with people in a a place called Art Inspired Academy in Springfield, Missouri, right? It's one of the things that in our community really lends itself to working with people, both, you know, from children through adulthood who have cognitive differences, right? (sighs) So every year, I also, in addition to having my students work with those students at Art Spider Academy, I also have the, us make a piece, right, and then show it to various parts of the Art Spider Academy audience. So we make a piece, and we make a piece largely based on the experiences my students have, what we've read in the class, just an amalgam of all of those pieces of information that we hope speaks with as well as to the communities that my students get to work with and the one year that i did this that i felt worked the best right and there, there were good things about each and every project we did right i'm not saying that everything else failed and this one was the only one that succeeded that certainly was not the case but this one was a piece that I asked a colleague of mine whose daughter is on the autism spectrum, I I asked him, I asked Kena's wife, would your daughter be willing to write us a play? Because she at the time was, I believe, 12. I said, wouldn't it be lovely if she could write a play for us and we could put her play on? And he said, oh my gosh, it would really make her make her life, right? That would be a really good thing to do. And I said, well, let's try it. You know, we can even get a a draft from her early in the semester. And then when we get up on our feet with it, we can add little things into it so that it becomes something that is potentially more stageable. Right. Because every drama does that going from the page to the stage. So we put all of that in process. I had a wonderful cast who really sort of stepped up to say, sure, Um, this particular child who is now a young woman really loved, and I believe still loves superheroes. So a lot of our characters were superheroes and um, that's also not unusual for those who are on the spectrum. And that's a whole nother conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But that piece that we did of hers, I felt really was the truest to where autism comes from, right? Not not how, you know, how do you diagnose it and, you know, where, like, how has it happened? But where where is the starting point, right? Where is the perceptual entry point from that perspective, right? It was lovely. And the talk back that we did in the classroom afterward was phenomenal. It just, it made me feel like, oh my gosh, right? It. I mean, it made me feel like, oh my gosh, right? I should have had, I should have had someone like my colleague's daughter, who's on the spectrum, write for us every single year. And it's a little bit tricky to do that. She's quite bright, right? So, mm-hmm. and and was someone who was known to do writing of her own, right? So it wasn't like that was her first play. That's what I'm trying to say. She had written other right, stuff right. as well. So it all kind of worked out. For the best for everybody, um, but it, it for me it was a moment where we got something authentic about the experience of autism, and we put people who were not autistic inside of that experience on stage, where again it's a little safer to do that because this is a representation. This is not a a real thing right it's it's Mm -hmm. something that is constructed rather than what we would consider to be real although that's a whole other conversation too frankly (laughs) about (laughs) what counts as real and what is constructed but at any rate I, I feel like that in my mind was the highest point of teaching that particular class over the years when I had the opportunity to take from someone who was on the spectrum texts that they had written, scenarios to put on stage that I could let my students embody and try to come up with ways of staging that had everything to do with the text that she had written for us, right? And that, I think, quite frankly, that is where any number of disability representation structures, situations are at this moment in time, is the sense of, Rather than, you know, and in my own ways, I guess I, I fell into the the spot, same spot that Robert Wilson did, the sense of, oh, let's take from and put on stage, right? Robert Wilson saying, oh, Christopher Knowles has such a cool way of looking at things in the world. Let's take his perspective and make this whole piece basically from his perspective. It's it's a little bit, it was a little bit of that, me saying to this person, hey, write us a play from your perspective, And let's let it be about whatever you want it to be about and know that it is going to say something about autism that we would like to put up on stage on our feet. Right? So it has, it has echoes of what Robert Wilson did with Christopher Knowles. Only this time around, what was lovely about it was that I got to advertise it to the community as a play that had been written. By a person who was on the spectrum. I didn't put that in the program, right? I put mm-hmm. her name. I didn't say, this person, she has autism, right? But that should have been fairly obvious to the people who are watching what we put up in the space. The sense that this was not written by some, that's not a play written by somebody who didn't have literal experience as someone on the autism spectrum. And what was lovely about it for me and definitely came out in the talkback was the sense that people watching saw this and didn't think to themselves, oh, I I can't understand that experience or, oh, I have no entrance into that experience or, oh, that's just too beyond me, right? People watched this and really connected with it, right? And whether they connected with it because we were using superheroes or whether they connected with it because it was students within the community themselves who were putting this on, whether they connected with it just for the sheer sense of... Having there, having the the people at Art Inspired who came to see the piece, right? I always, every time I do work with them, I have at least some contingent from their school or one other institution around here who, in Springfield, Missouri, who uh, addresses cognitive difference and learning. These were people who came up to my students after the play and said to them, when we were all in the space, said, "Thank you so much for telling my story." Right. Mm -hmm. Because they almost never get a chance to do that, to come straight up to the artist and say, wow, you were telling my story. I really appreciate that. That also, mind you, didn't stop some from coming up and saying this part wasn't really right. Right. Mm -hmm. And they have every right to say that, that this was one person's experience with autism that we put on stage, not everybody's experience
0: yeah well, hopefully that there will be uh enough uh plays written and and directed and acted by people on the spectrum that the next time somebody wants to write a book about the intersection of autism and theater, they'll be able to include even more of those examples of uh, autistic artists themselves kind of telling their own stories. That really seems like the the kind of uh next frontier for this kind of work Yes,
1: I would highly agree with that, and I would say yes, there are even companies there are companies now again i'd have to do more research on it but there i know there are companies that are made up of people who are on the autism spectrum right and whether they make work that that speaks to autism or whether they just make work right as people who have a different perspective doesn't necessarily matter it's that they are given the chance to make the work and they're putting an authentic perspective out there on stage for people to see. So,
0: yeah. Well, great, Tellery Arundel. This has been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed the book, and thanks so much for uh, for for letting me read it and for being on the show.